Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, ElixirConf 2022. We just wanted to put a reminder in there. It's going to be August 30th through September 2nd in Denver, Colorado. Call for proposals are due July 2nd. So that's coming up here soon. We'll drop a link in the show notes if you're interested in registering, but early bird tickets are now on sale. So act now if you're interested. Yeah. Speaking of conferences, uh, Codebeam America is happening in November. So ElixirConf first and then Codebeam America later. They're now accepting training ideas for their upcoming conference. So we've got a couple of links to that. This year, Codebeam America is going to be held at the Computer Museum in Mountain View, California on November 3rd through the 4th. I've always heard about the Computer Museum, so I might have to go make a trip. (laughs) That'd be a pretty cool place to visit. I can't say that and not say where ElixirConf is going to be. It's going to be in the Gaylord Hotel in Aurora, Colorado, which is right there in Denver. And it's super nice. Like, it's really nice. So if you just imagine like lazy rivers, lots of little restaurants there. It's all self-enclosed, beautiful sunsets. That's right. I'm setting the stage here. This is ElixirConf 2022. Are either of you planning on attending either ElixirConf or CodeBeam? I don't know yet. I'll have to think about it. I could be convinced. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely going to ElixirConf because I've been stuck at home for too long now. And that's the one I mentally put in my, my head. Like, that's the one I'm going to. But now that I have like two young kids, you know, any, any, anything can be thrown off the table pretty quickly, <laughs> but we'll see. But that's what I'm going to try to go to. And I don't know, I'll, I'll give a best effort for Codebeam America. That'd be pretty cool. I totally want to attend ElixirConf as well. That's kind of the one I'd, you know, mentally bookmarked as the one I wanted to attend. So yeah, hopefully we can all get some tickets for that and make it out there. Oh, and I, I think this year they'll be featuring power in the hotel. Ooh. <laughs> it was funny. When we when we first attended that conference, there was a whole blackout for a whole section of Aurora. So it wasn't just like the hotel. I didn't even notice it initially because the power was still on because they had generators for the elevators and everything. So I get up to my room and then it's like my, oh, there's no, no lights. <laughs> Every year there's something exciting that happens. So we'll see what this year entails. <laughs> <laughs> and next up, the library REC, REQ, had a version 0.3 that was released. So this is Voitech Mock's library. And what's fun about this change is the API was significantly altered. And this new API lets you set up a request struct with a lot of default basic configuration. So you can say like the base URL and maybe some headers like uh, for authorization or something like that. And then you can pass around this rec struct to make subsequent calls to say, get this URL, now get that URL and make maybe do a post. So that works really well when you start thinking of putting it in live book where you're having the cells. So I can do my request setup all the config in one cell, and then just make calls in later cells. But the REC library is not just intended for live book. It works great in lots of different use cases. So it's just a a nice different way of setting up the API to be more user-friendly for making multiple calls. Also with uh, 0.3 here, he he released a couple of like plugins that work with REC. I think we talked about it in the news before, but there's like some cool stuff you can do with like the hex API really easily. So you can like kind of traverse the package and like go into the mix.exs file or something like that. 
that's one example. There's a, there's another one for GitHub. So if you wanted to, to check out the GitHub API, this thing will handle the OAuth connection for you and open up a browser window. You type in the code and stuff like that, and, and it just starts connecting at that point. And it caches, you know, the the connection. So it's it's pretty cool. There's lots of little plugins there. We'll drop a link to that. But this looks pretty interesting. I'm I'm excited about it. It's always fun to see how people come up with different ways to like. You always have this common problem of like, I want like HTTP Poison is like their example is wrap the GitHub API. So make an implementation that puts the base URL, puts the token, yada yada yada, and then you can just use it by just saying GitHub dot post and say slash just the path, you know, rather than all the other configurations. And so it's always interesting to see like how each library does it a little differently. Yeah. What's interesting is, is a lot of times it's kind of set up with the object oriented feel, which I don't like because it doesn't flow with everything else being so functional. But I think the idea of the request library kind of takes that in a different path where it's like, no, you're just setting up data as opposed to these callback functions that I see with other libraries that I'm not so much a fan of. But yes, I I like this idea of just setting up data and passing that around to have your pre-configured data. Are you talking about like the use HTTP poison in a module and then it kind of inherits all that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. And, it's so and confusing when I... <laughs> in, in, in quotations here, but yeah. <laughs> Maybe the biggest item today is Sean Moriarty shared a major milestone uh, today or th- this past week, the, the public release of Axon and Axon ONNX. So we saw a couple of tweets about this actually. And, and we recently talked with Sean about Axon back in the episode 102. In case you don't remember or, or haven't heard of Axon, Axon is a library that's been around for a while now, but uh, previously first tagged as a you know V.01 and has been published to hex PM, right? But in order to use it, you'd be referencing like the GitHub project. So it's still pretty early, but Axon is a way to deal with ML data models, things like that. And so Axon ONNX is the way to like convert these data models into a more portable format that you can use in other libraries, like in the Python world or in our world. Previously, in one of the news segments, we had kind of given our opinion about what we were seeing with some of these new ONNX library activity that was going on with like a sample, a live view project and everything. And it was confirmed that what we thought was going on was actually going on. So what that is, is with the Axon ONNX library. So ONNX is a format that machine learning models can use to be converted into. So I can have my PyTorch learning model be converted into the ONNX format. And then from that format, I can take it to other frameworks to actually run the model. And so the Axon ONNX library lets me import that model that was created in a different framework and a different language and everything, and then execute that in Axon. So this means that your team can have your data scientists that continue to use the tools they're already comfortable with, which is probably Python and things like that, but then execute the models in a production Elixir app without needing to integrate with other external services like hooking up to a Python application or something to actually run the models. So you can do it all in one place. I just think this is a huge win in terms of adoption within companies that, you know, you can still do all the training and building of the model over here and whatever tools you want. And then in production, we can still run it in our Elixir app. And that is really cool. 
Yep. I think that just unlocks so much stuff. Like, I don't know anything about machine learning, but it seems like there's probably a slew of models out there that now we could just go grab and pull in to do a variety of things in our Elixir projects. Yeah. I think the one thing we need to, to temper with this is that the ONNX format is not a standard. They're trying to find a, a way and a structure to model all these different machine learning approaches that have been taken, you know, Facebook and Google and everyone's been doing their own thing. And now we're trying to come up with a, a standard that makes them more portable. So you may have models that aren't portable and it might be getting better in the future. So it's not like this is like a Rosetta Stone and everything's going to transfer to everything. So it's, it's still early, but it does show a lot of promise. For our friends writing Elixir code using IntelliJ IDE, it was good to see that L. Imhoff has continued the development of the IntelliJ Elixir plugin. It enables people to use IntelliJ IDE and still write code. So if you're interested in that, we'll drop a link to the tweet of the ongoing development there. Yeah, it's version 13.1.0. So it's been going for a long time. When I first started coming to Elixir, I was using IntelliJ because I was already using that with my RubyMine kind of Ruby development. And having the same IDE was helpful because the key bindings were all the same and everything was all the same. And that was one of the things I wanted to use originally. So it's it was tools like this that make it a smoother on-ramp for people coming from different environments. You know, if you're doing a lot of Java development, you're probably using IntelliJ. So giving them the ability to start writing Elixir in a familiar tooling, that's a great thing. So happy to see that continued work there. All right, last up, Nimble LZ4 was released with the help of Rustler Precompiled. This was released by Andrea Leopardi. LZ4 is a lossless compression algorithm providing compression speed greater than 500 megabytes per core. I'm quoting how they define themselves. Scalable with multi-core CPUs. It features an extremely fast decoder with speed and multiple gigabytes per second per core, typically reaching RAM speed limits on multi-core systems. All right. Well, that's enough to convince me that this is a pretty cool algorithm for compressing and decompressing stuff. How this compares to Zlib, and Erlang has uh, bindings to Zlib natively, right? And, and if, you've, if you've done any kind of cryptographic work in, in Erlang before with native stuff, chances are you, you might be using Zlib, maybe? I don't know. LZ4 is like way faster. <laughs> like way, 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 way faster. So if that's important to you and you don't mind the extra binary that goes uh, along with that, it's it's going to be easy because of Rustler pre-compiled now. So that's the good news here. Just bring in your hex package and it'll and it'll take care of the rest for you. So that that's the dream, right? So because of that dream, I think Andrea Leopardi was like, ah, this is the time to get something out for LZ4. So that's pretty cool. Really, really happy to see that out there. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today we're being joined by our special guest, Uku Tat. Uku, welcome to the show. Hello. I'm glad you could join us because you are actually with the Plausible IO company and project. And that's been in the news a lot, just as a an alternative to Google Analytics. And whoa, this is interesting. And what can I do with this? And what? It's an elixir. Like that's the craziest part, right? So I, I would really love to learn more about that and talk about what you guys are doing, how this is an open source project, how you run this, how you make money. But before we jump into all that, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself and pronounce your name properly. 
Sure. My name is uh, Uku Taht and uh, I'm from Estonia. That's why I have a weird name. I lived in London for a long time. That's sort of the development community, I guess, where I quote unquote grew up in. <laughs> and yeah, I've, I've moved back to Estonia to work on my, my little projects to have a more quiet life, I suppose. I've been doing Elixir for more than five years on and off, mostly on. Yeah, I'm the author of a couple visible projects. So I I think in 2015, 16, I wrote Elixir Cohen's, which is a um, a way for beginner Elixir students, I suppose, to to learn Elixir. And this was heavily inspired by Ruby Cohen's, and well, Cohen's is almost like a genre of of, of projects in in every language. There are Cohen's, so I decided there should be one for Elixir as well. And more recently, I've worked on on Plausible, which is a web analytics tool, and uh, and that's been going pretty well. So that's what I'm here to talk about. Nice. So it's it's interesting. You say you've were in the London scene for doing a lot of the development stuff, but you didn't manage to pick up the London accent. So that's cool. <laughs> it's because I worked uh, for an American company, and so all my coworkers were American, Italian, Spanish. London is not really an English. Place. It doesn't feel like it's it's more of an international place where you just go and there's everyone there. So how did you end up coming to Elixir then? That's probably not your first language. I think it was other people at the company I was working at who were kind of interested in Elixir. If I remember correctly, it was Dave Thomas who gave a, a, a big keynote about Elixir that got us all excited about it. And so we were trying to learn, trying to play around with it, trying to find applications, you know, use cases for Elixir. It, it was the early days. We were just playing around with some exciting new technology, but we never got to use it in, in, a, in a production environment. My first real production experience with Elixir was a bit later on. It was a company that was, that was building some sort of messaging app in, in London that I worked for for a few months. And then I moved on to Plausible, really. Uh, so it, it's... We had a few projects during my time in London doing Elixir, but uh, well, what I did was I left the company I worked at to go and do Elixir, basically, <laughs> which I think a lot of people have done uh, who are in the Elixir community. That's what you got to do if you want to do it full time. Yeah, that's that's exciting and like terrifying at the same time, right? Like, because not only did you leave leave your company to go work in Elixir, but you left and started your own company too, right? In, in Elixir. Yeah, there was a lot of learning there for sure. Yeah, so I, I went to work in Elixir for a legit company uh, with funding and, and a salary and everything. I couldn't stop thinking about building something myself. So on the side, I, I, I felt like I needed to build something of my own. Uh, and so I started doing Plausible and I, I didn't stay at that company for very long. I knew I wanted to do Elixir and I had my own project. And so I, even though I was there for a while, uh, most of my Elixir experience has been Plausible really. So I think that's a, a good time to jump in and just introduce what Plausible is. Like for those listeners out there who may not be familiar with what the company is doing, what the project is doing, what problem it's solving, maybe you can introduce us. Plausible is a web analytics tool. It's, it's intended to be a replacement mostly for Google Analytics, which is the most common one uh, that people use. And it started mainly from a I would say an ethical point of view, uh, as in I, I didn't want to run Google Analytics on my sites because it was around the time when Cambridge Analytica came out and the general 
view of of large tech companies was starting to shift and GDPR came along and and installing Google Analytics felt wrong in in 2018 to me. <laughs> so I I thought I would try to build something that's a little bit better because uh I wrote a blog post at the time called the analytics tool that I want, which was about sort of what I was looking for and what I didn't find in the market, in the marketplace at the time. And and I saw the, a gap there and I, and I decided to go for it. Do you feel like since that blog post that you wrote that things have gotten better or worse around trust in big companies? I think it's pretty easy to say that <laughs> the trust is getting worse and worse every year. Google Analytics is getting shut down. So in the beginning of this year, there were a couple of court rulings that I think gave a final blow to Google Analytics as, as something that isn't going to work under GDPR. Universal Analytics is going to be shut down in July 2023, and uh, everyone will have to move on to new products, one of them being Google's new analytics product. The world of analytics, data, privacy, it's, it's changing a lot. And, and the regulators have started yielding their power, and, and so things are really moving now. I guess this is your chance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember uh, when Plausible launched. I remember thinking, of, you know, along the same lines. And I, I'm an early user of Plausible. I, I still put Plausible on, on on all my sites because there's still some data that I want to like know about. But I don't like. Yeah, like you, you're right. Like Google's, you know, analytics product and a lot of the other ones out there, just a bit too invasive and too, too, too much information that I don't need. And too complex. And their, their stuff is also going to enrich their overall view of everyone as opposed to just what you care about for your website. So you told me what Plausible you know, is in a, in a basic sense, but what are some of the things that you can get out of Plausible? If you run a website, if you run a blog or, a, or a, say an e-commerce store or a marketing site for your product, it will tell you how many people are visiting your website and how many page views each page is getting. We do measure bounce rates and time on page, things like that per page. We have a lot of the basic stuff that you would look up in, in, a, in a Google Analytics account. Where we sort of stop are some of the more advanced use cases and definitely ones where we would have to, so we don't do things like retention analysis where you can say after 10 days, how many people are still coming back. We try not to follow people for 10 days. So we have a shorter period of time when, when people are identified as a single user. There are some limitations compared to Google Analytics, but largely for, for most people, I think what, what we show is, is enough. Like, like seeing how many people are visiting your website, how many people are registering, what are the conversion rates, bounce rates. These are the kinds of things that you know we care about daily. And, and yeah, if, if you need something more, there are more advanced analytics tools that you can hook up on top of Plausible that will give you some of the deeper insights. But we found that most people tend to be really happy with, with the stuff we have. Gotcha. And so as a as like a web surfer, if I go to a site that is using Plausible, does that website have to th throw three modals and confirm all cookies and all that kind of stuff? <laughs> Do, do they have to do that when they're using Plausible? Yeah, one of the great things about Plausible is that it doesn't use cookies. And the way we've designed it is um, we do not store any personal data. With that, we believe that the cookie banner is unnecessary, at least when it comes to Plausible. So you might be using cookies for other things, and, and that's a different story. But if you only use Plausible, you shouldn't need to use cookie banners. 
nor would you need to get GDPR consent from the users. So that's also part of why I wanted to build plausible was because the UI of the web, let's say, is, is, is getting is degrading slowly with all the models and all the pop-ups, but also pages being really heavy. Like Google Analytics is 50 kilobytes of code. Yeah, 50 kilobytes is not that much, but if you if you keep adding a bunch of scripts like this, you end up having, you know, half a megabyte of scripts on your page. <laughs> you know, I've specifically designed Plausible to be something that keeps websites fast, keeps websites uh, lightweight, and, and doesn't come with any legal requirements around using it. Yeah, I want to take a second to remember what the web was like uh, five years ago. Uh, and maybe even like longer, you you would simply just go to a site. You would just see the content, right? And nothing showed up. No modals. You, know, you, you would just see the content. Yeah. Like, it's mind blowing. I can't remember that. What are you talking about? Exactly, right? And we've normalized how ridiculous websites have gotten for like normal use. Like, I just, just give me the content. Okay. So thank you. That is a great description and effect of what plausible can do for you know website owners david it sounds like you kind of you kind of set up that that nice discussion around gdpr and like you already knew the answer yeah no, well that's a huge that's a huge deal like i i the, the bringing back the simplicity of the web i think is maybe a little bit underappreciated totally unrelated, but there's another article that just came out about how local host development is going to go away in five to 10 years and everything's going to be developed on the web. And oh my God, I, I don't want to talk about it here because that's just a whole nother podcast episode, but I don't want that to happen. I like, because stuff is just going to get way too complex and I get it. If things need to be complex and if you're running Facebook, fine, but most of us aren't running, you know, Google and Facebook and have, uh, you know, teams of 2000 engineers or something like that. Most of us have just got, you know, small and medium sized businesses where that kind of stuff is just completely unnecessary. And the benefit of being small and agile, like plausible, is that you don't have to inundate yourself with the complexity of all their tools. So you said that you founded plausible when it started. Did you start by yourself? Yeah. uh, When I started, it was by myself. I was trying to involve a co-founder from day one because I knew that that would really help with motivation and drive as, you, as you're doing it to share it with someone. Unfortunately, I didn't manage to to get anyone on board for two years. So for, for the first two years, I was a solo founder doing it myself, not really getting it anywhere, to be honest. Uh, I was at 400, 500 MRR, so, you know, barely covering. Which is four or 500 more than most people have ever gotten to. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I considered it a, a success at that point, to be honest, because my whole goal was I wanted to build a side project and launch it and have it make like one dollar. That was, that was the goal. <laughs> That's a good goal, honestly. Modest goals. Yeah. Going from zero to one is so much harder than going from one to 10 customers, let's say, or revenue or whatever. I totally agree there. One of the things that's somewhat unique about the way you talk about plausible on on social media and stuff is you're quite transparent. Can you share some of these stats that you talk about, about where plausible is right now in terms of volume and and customers? Active installs. uh, That's the main thing that I I like to track. We're on about 40,000 websites at the moment. That's the amount of websites that are hopefully not running Google Analytics because they have an alternative. And that's really what we focus on is like how many 
websites can we essentially be the Google, hopefully. From a technical perspective, what's interesting is we are ingesting north of a billion events per month. At peak times, we're doing a few thousands, you know, database inserts per second. So there is a technical challenge there for sure. Working with a small team on something that uh, gets exercised like this uh, is something that's new for me. Like I've never had to keep a server going that gets uh, hammered <laughs> that much with data. Yeah. What's the scale of those servers looking like these days with all that traffic? We have the largest Hetzner VMs. So what would that be? Like 48 CPUs and 200 gigs of RAM or something. And we got three of those, I think, just for the app servers. Databases are bigger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was my next question was the database because handling thousands a second. Okay. So I don't want to forget about this because another unique thing about Plausible it's it's in the opening statement about plausible is that it's simple. We covered that lightweight covered that, but the other thing was open source. We haven't touched on that yet. And so when I looked at the um, plausible source there, I, I noticed that one of the databases that you guys use is called ClickHouse, and I had never heard of ClickHouse before. And now that you've mentioned that, that like the database traffic there is pretty absurd. <laughs> like, how's ClickHouse, you know, helping with that? And and I'm also curious of how being open source has maybe assisted you in, in building your business? I moved from Postgres to ClickHouse two years ago. Initially, it was all in Postgres because it was all about making the simplest technical choice that gets me going the fastest. Where we all start. <laughs> yeah. Don't try to over-engineer your proof of concept. But at, at, a, at a certain point, it outlived its usefulness. So I had to look at something that's actually built for analytics a column-based database will do much better at this kind of use case. I analyzed a few OLAP databases, they're called online analytical, something like that. Uh, it's the OLAP databases, they're analytical databases. I evaluated a few, and I th at the time, I thought it was a risk to go with ClickHouse, but it gave me the best performance numbers in my testing, and it also felt the best in, as, a, as a sort of a form of developer uh, experience perspective using it was just a joy uh, compared to some of the other tools that I tried that I'm not going to name. <laughs> I, I went with it. It was a big risk and I went with it. And to this day, I think it was the best technical decision I've made on the whole project because ClickHouse is awesome. And if you have an analytical use case, you should use it. Probably. It all depends. I've been a consultant in the past. It's You can't just make blanket statements like this, but uh, <laughs> sure, sure generally speaking. Well, we're doing it anyway. <laughs> How far into the business were you when you decided you were high enough scale that you needed to switch databases? So that was around the time when my co-founder joined, Marco. He is a marketer and he wrote some pretty viral blog posts. And what happened was we had some really big clients asking us like, hey, I, I can see that you, you know, your pricing only goes up to 1 million events per month. What if I have 20? <laughs> so we would get questions like that. And uh, I would say it's never going to work in Postgres. So uh -oh. <laughs> uh, it was basically to, uh, to get bigger clients. I had to just go away for two months and change everything in our backend. And, and is it true that one of those things you had to, to do to change and adopt ClickHouse was to write the Ecto driver for ClickHouse? Did you have to do that? No, not quite. There was one I found. But we forked it and I'm still using and maintaining the fork and I've developed it. And so it's unclear which ClickHouse library is like the proper one out there. 
because we have our own fork. Some other people have their forks. I think there are only a handful of companies using it, Elixir and ClickHouse. Talking about it, this is one of the things that we've thought about sponsoring. So hiring a, a, someone specifically who has done Ecto and Elixir work to build an awesome driver so that Elixir people can start using ClickHouse properly. To talk about the open source aspect, being open source has definitely been great in that so many more people have learned about this project. So many people can use it who wouldn't be able to use us on the cloud, maybe. A lot of people write to us saying, you know, I can't afford the the product on the cloud version, but I, I can easily pay for a VPS. So so we have a bunch of people self-hosting. And that's that's been great. From a project management perspective, I don't know if it's been good. <laughs> Managing open source, oh. anyone who's done it will, will know that. It's, it's a stressful thing. There's a bunch of people who have an, a free pass to to add to-do items on your to-do list at any given time of day, and uh, you have to deal with them. So uh, that's something that uh, it's been a struggle for me is, is managing the open source aspect. It, it's a struggle for everyone, but we have the resources to actually do it well. So I'm, I'm hoping to, to keep doing it well and, and invest into that part of what we do as well. Well, it's funny you say it like that, because when you say you have the resources, you have what, three people? Working at the company? <laughs> yeah, uh, we have, yes, we, our development team is, is three people indeed. And one of them is, is site reliability engineers. So in terms of application developers, it's two people. So anyone who has two or more people at their company has the resources. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Well, well I do want to like maybe adjust the expectation around open open source. So like uh, during a news segment, I think maybe last week, Mark pulled up a quote by Adam Watham. I'll quote it here, maybe to adjust our perspective a little bit that open source is the right to repair for software, right? Nothing more, nothing less. Right? So you mentioned that it, it might, you know, it kind of gave folks a free pass to put to-do items onto your, you know, onto your things to do as a business. And I mean, maybe there's merit to to that, like, because there's a way that the business can use those, you know, perspectives from, from suggestions and issues that are opened up. But continue on with the quote here. It says, maintain that attitude and any frustration or entitlement you feel will be replaced with with gratitude. So it's better for maintainers and better for you. I love that quote. I like that quote because right to repair is actually a political item in the US right now. But also it just shows that when things aren't open source, it's not yours. You know, you you can't you can't go and self-host it and do do the thing. And when you find an issue with it, you can't repair it because you don't have the source to it. And and I love that plausible is open source there too. If something happens, you know, in the in the distant future, and plausible is no more for some weird reason, an unfortunate reason, you know, the folks that have adopted it and self-hosted, you know, the the source code, they're not out of luck. You know, like their stuff is going to continue working, which is fantastic. That's a durability that outlasts people, right? Uh, and businesses, which which I really appreciate that. It is my dream and hope that the project outlives me, like me being involved, hopefully. That would be the best outcome. I, I think of it as an open source project first and like the business can come and go, but Hopefully the project will stay, you know, <laughs> that's how I think about it. Well, we should talk a little bit more about the Elixir project itself. Give us an outline of this. Is this a Phoenix app? Is it an umbrella app? Is it how, what does this look like if someone goes and looks at the code? Yeah, it's pretty standard Phoenix app, to be honest. There's not much craziness there. You know what I just heard? 
I just heard you say that a standard little normal Phoenix app can scale to do incredible things on the right hardware. That's what I heard. Yeah, of course. <laughs> that should be fairly obvious. Phoenix is super fast. And uh, yeah, as long as you're, you know, making use of the hardware, as long as you're not artificially creating bottlenecks anywhere, uh, yeah, you can run a company like ours easily on a, yeah, it's, it, it's not like we're running on a massive fleet of insane infrastructure. It's pretty simple. It's three servers plus some database servers. Yeah. Phoenix is fast. It's really fast. You don't need to do much. I mean, we've, we've done some, some performance work, but that was purely because I didn't know how to use 10 servers and I screwed it up and I had to go back and fix it. So happens to all of us. Yeah. (laughs) Gen servers is a great way to create a bottleneck by just creating a gen server and yeah, having a single point, a single queue in your, in your code base. I've thought about splitting it up and I think I will at some point because the characteristics of taking data in are so different from the characteristics of reporting data out. So for example, if reporting is broken, we still want to accept incoming data. So there's a almost like a requirement of isolating those two aspects of, of the, of the product. So that I, I was up last night because Uh, We had an issue with our customer database, which took down the tracking also, which shouldn't happen. Like they're not related, you know? So that's, that's part of where I've thought about maybe splitting them up into two separate apps, but I'll have to weigh the, the complexity of that versus like how nice it is to just have everything in one place at the moment. It is really nice. So what kind of a front end do you have? Because you know, a lot of it is just the, it's receiving data that's coming out of JavaScript that's running in people's browsers all over the world. So you have like this deluge coming in that you're putting into this database. So how are people seeing it coming out when they're wanting to see their dashboards and stuff? What are they interacting with there? On one hand, we have the fire hose of data coming in. And on the other hand, I wrote a blog post called, which also was pretty well-received called uh, you don't need a single page app which i do believe in i'm i really like the old standard rail style phoenix style server rendered pages i'm very productive in that paradigm that's what i went with initially at some point the the dashboard became complex enough where i wanted to have more like i wanted to have front-end routing for certain things and i wanted to have more interactive modals and pop yeah. so at some point i i introduced react for the for just the dashboard, all the rest, like the settings page and things like that are still server rendered HTML pages, whereas the dashboard is front end rendered. So it's a hybrid. There's a part that's like an SBA and there's a part that's server rendered. When I started the project, LiveView wasn't stable yet. I believe it was an idea. <laughs> now with where it is, it's something that's really appealing to me to, to try it out as a business owner, it doesn't make sense to me to go back and rewrite some React in Live View to see the difference. So I'm, I haven't evaluated that as a, as a front-end possibility yet. Well, for what it's worth, you know, we've been tracking LiveBook, which uses Live, Live View underneath fairly often, you know, on the podcast. And uh, we've seen some pretty incredible examples of performance on graphing in LiveBook using Kino and stuff like that. And so, so we, I know that, you know, uh, yeah, business-wise, it obviously doesn't make sense. But if it ever gets to the point where it's like, okay, it's time to re, rewrite some of this, 
Live View is actually not a terrible choice there. You know, like I know that uh, there's a lot of front end frameworks that are typically, you know, well regarded for front end performance for 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 graphing and stuff like that. But yes, Live View is not that bad. Yeah, it honestly it looks to be well suited for our use use case. It's just something that came out and we're sort of technically locked into a previous solution. Let's put it that way. So what you have now though, you know, are, are there any particular things that you're proud of in the plausible plausible app with what you do have? Pre the big rewrite? <laughs> <laughs> if I think about things that I'm proud of, I, I would say one of them is the the simplicity uh, as we talked about. That's something that I've been pursuing with this project is, is, is trying to make something that's really simple. And that means the UI, that means the way you use it, the way you set it up, but it also means the code and the, and the architecture and the infrastructure. We don't have Redis. We don't have a message queue. We don't have a bunch of things that people would think you need for something like this. So our app, from an infrastructure point of view, we're doing a lot and we're doing it with Elixir, Postgres and ClickHouse, nothing more. I've thought about bringing in Kafka's and I've thought about bringing in caching layers and things like that. But after all, simplicity wins for me. And unless we're absolutely forced to bring anything like this in, we're not going to. I think that's an interesting point, though. Just like if I'm considering self-hosting, that's approachable. The alternative would be to say, oh, if you want to self-host it, sure, you can, but you have to have this layer and that layer and, and Kafka and you have to manage and set up a Spark cluster and, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? It's like, no, it really is that simple. I just find that fascinating. So maybe he does need to do that for the business side of... Yeah, just make it so, oh yeah, you can self-host it, but no one will. <laughs> to, to help his sales. Who <laughs> can self-host it? Good luck. The self-hosting aspect is genuine. We're trying to make it genuinely useful and, and self-hostable. But yeah, I can see I can see a company being captured by a PE firm and, and doing something like that. Yeah, for sure. I, I really like how you started as simple as possible and only introduce more things as it's necessary. I feel like like as software engineers we have we're artists and we want to like try out new techniques and it's it's sometimes really tempting to be like, well there's all this talk of like how these big million employee companies do microservices. Like that's for me. I'm going to do every little piece as a tiny microservice and then when you're by yourself, you're like quickly overrun by complexity and like you can get really far with like just a Phoenix app and a Postgres database that can get you so far that you actually have money to hire more employees and actually do some work to use ClickHouse and like scale. But you got so far before you ever actually had to use ClickHouse or change technology or cache or anything. It's just you can get so far with just the basics. So far, in fact, a recent tweet of yours showed a chart showing that you reached a million dollars annual recurring revenue. Congrats. That's a, that's a huge milestone. That's way more than $1. <laughs> that's way more than a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> Just the fact that you like tweeted that. Can I ask like, why do you tweet that? <laughs> why are you so open about that? I mean, wh why is the default to not be transparent? I don't get it. <laughs> Usually when things are hidden, like, uh, the revenue of a company, the salary of an employee or things like that. I think they're usually hidden for bad reasons, not for good reasons. So we sort of try to take the approach of being transparent by default, internally and externally. That's how we're trying to do it. 
it's just a matter of principle. And I don't know at, at what point it, it starts working against us or whether it will ever, or whether we should stop sharing. These are open questions, right? You think about these all the time. I mean, it's, it's not something that, that we just do without thinking about it. But so far, we haven't had a good reason to stop sharing. That's how we started. And that's how we've been doing it by default. And it helped us uh, to grow. I would recommend if you're trying to, if you're trying to get a company started, just share everything and people will be interested in your, in your story. So they'll, you know, they'll follow along. And that, that really helped us in the beginning. And we just keep doing it. I have to point out that one of the unique features that I saw about Plausible too, because I'm a user of Plausible, is that there's an option to make your metrics page public. That was very transparent. And, you know, I, I was using them on my blog, my my pages, like it, 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 no one no one cares about, you know, my stuff. So I was like, yeah, yeah I'll make it public. Sure. Because that way I don't have to put in a password or log in anywhere <laughs> to see what, well, you know, what's going on this week on, on, the, on the old site. But uh, I, I thought about it like as a business too. You're right. Like why, w- what are the compelling reasons? And I think you're onto something that perhaps the reasons why folks hide those kinds of things aren't for the greater good of society. They're probably trying to hide something that, that isn't for the greater good. I have to guess that a big reason people don't share things like companies don't share things like that is one, I'm afraid my competitors will use that information against me. But then I think you guys, like you're a three person team building this software at a scale that other company, you know, like much larger companies, you have to grow to be this huge size before they can actually accomplish the same thing. If I can guess uh, and, and posit my theory here, I think it's because you chose Elixir you kept it simple and you have a small team and you focus on simplicity and maintainability. And, and then because it's also small, it's like a competitive advantage. And the business is led by a technologist. I think that's very important. So there are times when we say no to stuff because I'm like, no, we're not ready for this on a technical level. There's stuff I need to get in place before we can do this. I'm not going to put a hack in now to satisfy some, some investor or CEO. We're going to do things right. That really helps is being able to control the requirements, being able to control the pace, the control the how we're moving. That's been a big aspect. Is like is previously I've always worked for where the requirements are coming from someone who isn't coding. So it's interesting to to approach it this way, where my co-founder might say, "We need to do. We we really want to do X in order to appeal to client sector Y." And sometimes I'll have to say that it's not the right time. It would work technically, maybe, but I would have to sacrifice the the quality and the simplicity of the code base. Something interesting about all the openness, like David, you mentioned you made your analytics open. So like all this openness, all the sharing, you're right. I feel like it's it's almost like free marketing because people are intrigued by it. And then David, I visited your blog one day and I saw the little analytics icon and I clicked on it and it took me to your public analytics page. And that was how I found out about plausible. I'm like, Oh, that's cool. What's plausible. This is neat. I like these dashboards. And then I discovered plausible. So it's like, it's just like a win, 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 win. Like people find out about it from this and people find out about plausible from David's public dashboard. And it just, it just all feeds on itself. Yeah. Some, some of it is inspired by what the web used to be. People used to have click counters on their web pages. People (laughs) used to be a more open, that that's the part of the web 
that still exists. It's tiny, but there still are people like this on the web. I love having them as clients, as customers, and talking to them on a daily basis. This project has exposed me to a really nice community of people who care about the web, care about open source, and it's given me a lot of faith in the state of the web. In thinking about this and kind of talking through some of this, do you think Elixir has played any significant role in you being able to pull this off or anything you've learned from this process doing this in Elixir? Absolutely. I I think that Elixir has played a huge part in the success of of the project. Things we already talked about are like the performance is just fantastic. I have nothing to compare to, so I'm not going to make any statements about how other languages would do. But I I really think that Elixir is a very well-suited language for for processing a lot of requests (laughs) in a short amount of time. It's not the best for data stuff, but I think for just dealing with a bunch of requests, which is what we do, it's fantastic. It has also helped us keep our system really simple, like that, like I talked about. There's a lot of things that we managed to avoid, uh, zookeepers and the Kafkas and the Redises, and so our stuff is really simple, and and it doesn't. There's not much that can break. I, I like having fewer things that can break. But the thing that I didn't expect. We're currently hiring for a fourth team member. Unfortunately, by the time this comes out, the applications will be closed. You can follow us for a future hiring round. We used to throw out like half the resumes immediately because you could tell that there's there's nothing here. The amount of good applications was so small and we had to do so much work in order to filter it down to the better applications, let's say. But now hiring from the Elixir community, like all the applications are great. It's unbelievable. I mean, the the quality of applications, CVs, people in, in, in the Elixir world uh, has really impressed me. So uh, it's a great community to be in. I'm having a good time hiring from within the community. That's a hidden benefit. <laughs> There's a couple things you said during our conversation I just want to touch on before we close. One of the things you mentioned was like you were up last night fixing a problem you know, there's those, sometimes those things come up, right? Where it's, it's demanding. And then you'd also mentioned the challenges of the open source aspect and people putting to do's on your issue tracker that you have to deal with and you have to spend mental effort on. Is there anything more you can say about that? Just for those of us who are also managing projects or responsible for projects and, you know, it becomes stressful. This is a really tough one for me because I recently had a small little burnout slash breakdown. <laughs> As you can tell, I'm, I'm in a position of a lot of responsibility. When your server is giving you a 503 and you don't know why, and there are 6,000 clients who are not getting what they want, and you're the only person who has the access to fix it and you don't know what's wrong. And when these things uh, pile up and there's multiple incidents at the same time, yeah, that's when you start getting into panic attack territory. Yeah, it's very difficult. I don't know. There, there's not like I'm looking for support right now. I'm I'm hiring and we're trying to I'm trying to delegate a lot of things and, and make sure and deal with my own stress. I took a month holiday just because my health really deter- deteriorated with this project. It's something that I think I'm not in a position to give advice. I've been something that I've managed very poorly myself. And uh, it's something that I'm, I'm trying to learn and, and get better at myself. Well, I think if nothing else, it's helpful for us to hear that that people in a position like yourself where you you have a business that is successful, that's going well. It's like it's still challenging 
And when we are in our own projects, we are in our own companies, our own teams, and we're struggling, it's like, okay, this, it's not just me. This is, this is kind of the situation that we live in sometimes. And hopefully, yeah, we can be open about it and talk about it and figure out ways of dealing with these things that, uh, that are healthy. Yeah. So I appreciate your openness too. So like you happen to be open about everything, right? So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I think that's the, I think that's the proper way to go through life is just do that. (laughs) Just be open. It's better. It works out. Like people will give you good advice and, and, uh, you get to have really, really nice conversations with amazing people. So yeah, I'm always for openness and transparency. The difficulty of, of managing is a company and open source projects and infrastructure. These are all things that just by themselves are super stressful. Having to do them all at the same time is something that, yeah, it, it, it affects me like really negatively every day. And it's something that I'm having to uh, work through. I've been in a situation where I was a, like a technical lead, like leading the backend team for a, a startup and it was stressful, right? And one of the challenges I saw is that the rest of the company didn't see the the challenges that we were dealing with, right? They saw the success, like, oh, customers love us and we're pushing into this. We need this feature. We need that feature, right? It's like kind of what you're talking about, like the marketing aspect of what market fit and what we want to do. And in the back end, we're like, we have to redesign this. This is a problem every day. We have to manually go in with scripts to figure out this. It was that disconnect. But Mark didn't own the business, so he couldn't make those decisions. Right. But it was stressful, right? It was almost like I had blinders to the success that the company was having. And I was just focused on the challenges and the the shortcomings that we were dealing with right now. So I don't know. It's, uh, it's an interesting difficulty. I, I also struggle to celebrate and see successes because I'm under so much stress. And when, when you say like, oh, you just made one million AIR, it's a huge deal. I'm like, yeah, but what if the, what if everything, you know, collapses tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) What if websites don't exist anymore? (laughs) Yeah. But have you seen my 503s from last night? (laughs) Exactly. You know, I I spent, we had like three hours of downtime, I think overnight. So it's, it's, uh, it's tough. You know, I, I I was up, I was, uh, coordinating with, with the SRE and, uh, yeah, my wife couldn't sleep. It was, uh, it was really difficult. Sorry, fiance. I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm raising two kids and one of them's a two-year-old now. It's, things get tough. Days go by and you're like, man, I wish that day would never happened. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think the some of the greatest relationships that we ever build in our life is through some of our hardest moments, right? And, you know, your, your fiance is with you, you know, during some very difficult times of building a business and your coworkers are there with you during difficult times, you know, and, and, and for the, maybe if the, for the rest of your life, you're never going to forget the relationships that you built here. And that's, that's irreplaceable, you know, um, plausible uh, businesses are, may come and go. I'm, I'm starting to get corny here, but uh, the value is, is in is in the relationships we built along the way. This is too deep. (laughs) Are there any features or anything coming up new that you're working on or excited to share that are coming up that people can look forward to? Yeah. What what can I expect next from, from plausible as a paying customer here? Give me something new. (laughs) Oh geez. You're adding to his anxiety. (laughs) What's coming up? Are you selling anything online? Other than myself and my persona. 
<laughs> no, I'm not. Why? Uh, you got something e-commerce coming up? That's what we're looking at. Yeah, that's that's the big thing that's missing. That is like our software's version 1.4, but like in my head, version one is when we have e-commerce module in there. Uh, we're still missing a huge chunk of the product. It will be funnels. Like you can also do funnels without necessarily selling anything. You can have a multi-stage funnel for signups or something like this. So uh, conversion optimization type of stuff. That's one big thing. The other one is comparison. So people have asked us like, hey, can I compare like this month with last year? So that's something we're, we're, we'll be looking at. Currently, all the comparisons are based on like if you're if you're looking at January, it will be based on comparing it with last year's December. So what we need to build in are like year on year, month on month, more interesting comparison modes for, for more advanced use cases. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of like small things that still to this day, it feels like there, there are a lot of things that just feel obvious, like that are missing that we need to build. So we haven't had a struggle with like, where do we go from here? It, it hasn't been a question ever. It, it's, we, it's pretty clear what we're building. It's e-commerce and funnels are the main thing that's missing. And comparison modes is a big deal. The other one is like intervals. So if you're looking at the graph, people want to control to, I see it by monthly or weekly or daily interval. So currently it gives you something that it thinks is is suitable for the time range, but re- really we want to give people control. So it's a lot of adding mo- mostly small little things that make it more useful. But yeah, that's exciting. That's exciting stuff. You know, the, the, it feels like today, you know, the web exists for e-commerce to spend your money. <laughs> hey, that all sounds really cool, though. And I'm re- I'm really excited for you. I think that's going to be a, a good turning point for Plausible. Uh, we'll be covering more and more use cases and giving people less and less reason to use Google Analytics. So I'm, I'm happy about that. Well, hey, well, hey, thanks for giving me an option other than than Google. So I, I appreciate that. I know we've, we've come a long way of, you know, the, the birth of plausible, you know, some ups and downs, you, you're, you make, you're making over, you know, a million dollars ARR now. That's, that's a fantastic. I didn't have this option maybe two years ago. So thank you for, for giving us, uh, you know, an option for, you know, keeping privacy, keeping open source and having a simple option again. So I really appreciate the work. Thanks for being one of the early adopters. That really helped. So if people are wanting to follow your story, which you are very openly sharing, where should they go to do that? We share stuff on Twitter. The only other social media we have is uh, Mastodon. <laughs> so uh, I think it's, I don't know any other company that does Twitter and Mastodon. Maybe th- there are a few, I think. So yeah, that, that's our choice of social media. If, you, if you're on the Fediverse, if you're on the open source side of things, follow us on Mastodon. If you're on Twitter, follow us on Twitter. Well, Uku, I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with us and give us some insight into what's going on with Plausible and being open and sharing about how it's an Elixir company and what that's done for you and that it's, you have an open source component, which is just, it's impressive that you even make the effort, you know, to, to keep it as an open source self-hostable thing. I think that's awesome. And I really look forward to following your journey as you continue. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.